we are in Genesis chapter 18. We've been going through the book of Genesis. I actually complained about this the other day to my co-elders. I tried to recruit them. I said, look, guys, you got to help me. I'm in a book that's very long. If I'm, if I'm preaching this book every week, every single week, and I preach a chapter a week, and I preached every single week, it would take me a year. I preach once a month. It's going to take me more than a year, you understand? I was like, I, I, I'm trying to guilt them into it. I'm like, hey, one of you guys help me out, you know, and, and uh, Randy Tyler's like, man, just take your time. If it takes four years, it takes four years. I'm like, okay, guess that's what we're doing. So, uh, chapter 17, remember, um, God had come to Abraham and given him the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. He also said a few things to uh, Abraham and Sarai that were very um, necessary kind of to review. I, I'm going to tell you right up front, and I'm going to kind of apologize for this. Today will not be Christianity 101. It will not. There are some things that have come up in this passage that we're going to end up talking about some of the attributes of God because of his Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about his ubiquitousness. We're going to talk about his immensity, his omnipresence, his omniscience. And so because of that... I've got to be honest with you, I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> we, we say it this way in academic circles. We say that all language about God is at its core analogical. What does that mean? Well, it means that because God is so holy, and the word holy means set apart, because God is so different from us, because God is at his base, at his nature, not like us, he is other. Because of that, we don't even have language that can fully encapsulate or envelop all of his traits, his characteristics, his attributes, or his ways. And so what we end up saying is that all theological language is analogical. We can make analogies. God is like this. It's sort of like this. God is like a father. But God also describes himself as being a mother in the scriptures. He, gave, I gave, he says to Israel through the prophets, I gave birth to you, right? How can he do, because he is not like us. And so I'm saying all of that to say this. I'm going to attempt to describe some of the aspects of God this morning that are very pertinent to this passage. And I want you to know right up front, I will fail at that. If I described this with absolute perfection of the human language, I could still not encapsulate and envelop that attribute of God. I am a finite creature. The words that I possess are finite. They're not perfect. They're not perfectly precise. And so in the end, I'm going to tell you right now, I cannot do justice, even though I'm going to do my very best. Even though I have studied this passage out for weeks, and I'm going to do my very best. I am going to fail at describing this adequately. Does that make sense? Which is kind of, it's kind of a bummer. But it's true. Um, I also wanted to make a kind of an introductory statement. I've had a couple of people ask me, hey, if you were going to study through Genesis, what are the commentaries or what are the things that you use that you like? And so I, I made a list this morning of the ones that I've been using and the ones that I like the most. Um, if you want to really get academic, meaning you can already speak Hebrew and Greek, I'm guessing not a lot of us in this audience are that way, uh, I would recommend Creation and Blessing by Alan P. Ross. It is probably the leading evangelical, in my mind, the leading evangelical commentary on the text. I think, though, for the most part, for most people, the one that's going to give you the best Bang for your buck is going to be, it's called the Genesis Record, and it's actually by Henry Morris. And the reason that I like it so much is it actually pulls in the scientific parts of this argument as well. It does a very, very good job. Uh, other than he's dispensational, but I'm giving him a pass on that for this morning. There's also the IVP Bible background commentary that's all right. John MacArthur has a, a whole Bible commentary that gets some good stuff in there as well. And then uh, Gordon Wenham actually writes the... Um, the word biblical commentary, it's a two-volume set on this as well. I use that a lot as well. But the one that I probably use, them, and then, of course, Matthew Henry and some of the others, but the one that I probably use the most is the Genesis record by Henry Morris. So if you're one of those people that's asked me, if you're one of those handful of people, there you go. Okay. Remember this. In chapter 17, God visited 
Sarai and Abram and changed their names. Remember that? And then he said this. He said, hey, you're going to have your wife's going to have a baby and I'm going to come back and see you again. Okay. And you're going to keep my covenant, you and all your descendants after you. That was 17 verse nine. I think that's very, very important for you to see. Just like uh, Justin was teaching this morning, I think it's very, very important that we see this. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. What is he saying? You're going to teach your children. We live today in a drop off culture. Why should I teach my kids anything? I'll find other people to do that for me. I'll drop them off. I want them to learn baseball. I'll drop them off at the baseball field. I want them to learn football. I'll drop them off at the football field. I want them to learn English, science, math. Drop them off at school. And I want them. I want them to learn about God. So I'll drop them off at church. I've got news for you. That that culture originated with the Greeks. It did not originate with God. Abraham did not drop his kids off. He taught them about Christ. It is not the school's responsibility and it's not the church's responsibility to teach your children about God's word. It is your responsibility. And I don't care how good of a church it is. Your children will not learn enough about God's word by dropping them off. Period. You are going to have to become involved You're going to have to do something that's not like every other Christian in our culture. It's not like the average ordinary Christian. I hate using that terminology because that shouldn't be the average. But today in American culture, the average is we go to church. I drop my kid off at youth group on Wednesdays. Maybe if we're really devout, we even talk about the sermon on the way home from Sunday from church. But we don't go into the scriptures day by day. We don't have family devotions on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday. No, we just do the drop off thing. We just we just do church culture. We come to church on Sunday mornings and I drop everybody off on Wednesday nights. And somehow I think that by the time they get to be 18, they're just going to be these awesome Christians. And we'll even talk in language like that. Oh, there's a good Christian kid. Really? They know about the Lord. Oh, yeah, they know the Lord. Really? You read through the Bible? Well, I, mean, I don't know. I, mean, I know they've read parts of it. 18 years old. They can do calculus. And you don't know if they've ever even read through the scriptures. I'm not saying studied it. Just read through it. Why don't you know? If my child at 18 years old has never read through the scriptures, that's not a failure on their part. It will be a failure on mine. I should be reading the scriptures with them. I should be teaching them the word. Let me tell you something. I don't care how much you know about God. If you never transmit that to anybody, it does very little good. One of the reasons that God comes down and talks to Abraham and says, I'm not going to veil myself from Abraham. I'm not going to veil what I'm doing from Abraham is because I know he will command his children after him. I'm going to show Abraham what I'm doing. Why? Because Abraham's going to tell his kids and his kids' kids and his kids are going to teach their kids. And this is going to be perpetual. This is knowledge that will not just be known for a generation and die. You know why we have the Christian culture we have today in America? Because a lot of the information that we have about God has died. I don't mean that the Bible itself has. I mean, we have a lot of people who decided I'm going to learn a lot about Jesus. And that's as far as it went. Well, I don't want to meddle. Teaching your children about God is not meddling. It's your duty. It's my duty. God said this, I will bless her. This is still chapter 17. I'll bless her and also give you a son by her, by her. Uh, Verse 15 says this, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah will be her name. I've just renamed her. What does Sarah mean? Princess. 
Sarah means princess. She's a princess with God. Even after all that she did, all the poor attitudes that she showed, God still says, she's my princess. It's as if he'd chosen her for a specific reason or something, huh? It's as if he'd decided not to change. And I'll bless her and also give you a son by her. It's like he has to make himself more clear. You know what I've been telling you for all these years? That you're going to have a son through Sarah? Yeah, you both need to know that you're going to have a son by Sarah. Not by the Egyptian slave girl. Not by a weird other way. I've been telling you what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. And Sarah, I've said this before, like any good Baptist, looks at her situation and goes, well, there's no way this could happen in the natural, so we better help him out. And God is saying clearly in 17 and again here in chapter 18, I don't need your help. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 99 years old, bear a child? Wasn't the same kind of laugh that we're going to see this chapter. Abraham laughed because he was excited. He believed God. This is incredible. I'm going to have a kid. I'm 100 years old. You're going to give me a kid? Through the natural? Yeah, I'm going to try not to be crude when I say this, but that's impressive. Some things are not happening that used to happen. Verse uh, chapter 18. Let's skip ahead. Let's get into this. Let's read through this chapter and then let's come back and exposit it. How about that? Chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. As he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself low to the ground. And said, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree. And I'll bring a morsel of bread that you might refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass by. Inasmuch as you've come to your servant, they said, do as you've said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. Right? He's saying, hey, babe, get lunch going. It's not time for lunch. Get lunch going. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. He took out butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Apparently they weren't vegan. Just throwing it out there. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And she said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now listen, I'm going to make a perfunctory note real quick here, and then I'm going to get back to this. But you should know this. Sarah now knows this must be God. How does she know this must be God? Who else knew about her name? Where's Sarah, your wife? Well, everybody else thinks my wife's name is Sarai. Pretty sure she knows who this is. He said here in the tent, he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. I think that's fairly standard. We should probably know by 90 she has passed that age. But just in case you weren't sure, God makes it clear. And she said to herself, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord also being old. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At that appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, roughly nine months. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For, in other words, for this reason, 
Verse 19, you should circle it, star it, underline it. Make photocopies, cut it out, put it all over your home, keep it in front of your eyes, stick it on your refrigerator, whatever you've got to do. Why is he, is he revealing himself to Abraham? Why is he making himself known so explicitly to Abraham? For I have known him in order that he might command his children and his household after him. Why have I known him? I have known him in order that he might command his children and his household after him, that they might keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Did God not know what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah before this? Was he unaware? Man, I just didn't know what was going on. I, I, these guys brought me some news and I had no clue. I got to go down and see if this is true. No. This is analogical language. Why? Why would God go down to Sodom and Gomorrah? It's not for his benefit. Why is he going down? There are some things, and you'll find this out when you're a parent, and every parent out here knows this is true. There are some things you will do, and you will do it so that your children can see it, because it's for their good to see it. When you have children, you don't always do your praying in secret. Why? Well, I want them to be able to see this is how we pray. This is what we do. God is doing the same thing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go down here. Same thing with the Tower of Babel. Why did he have to go down to the Tower of Babel? Did he not know what was going on before? No, he's doing this for our behalf. He's doing this for our good. Just like when Jesus was praying. At times, Jesus is praying out loud in the presence of his disciples so that his disciples can hear what he's praying. It is not, in other words... This is not a passage of Scripture that's telling us, see, God isn't all-knowing. Um, that's ridiculous. God is certainly all-knowing. He is immense. He's everywhere. There's no way that He cannot be all-knowing because of His nature, which I will get into here in a little bit. So He said, I'll go down now and see whether they've done uh, altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. Verse 21 says that. And if not, I will know. 22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So how many men went toward Sodom? Two. How many stayed and talked with Abraham? One. Okay. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. To slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous men within the city, then I will spare the place for their sakes. Or, I'm sorry, not righteous men, just righteous, 50 righteous within the city, 50 righteous people. Verse 27, then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I, I who am... But dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. But suppose that there were five less than the 50. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. And he said, I'll not do it for the sake of the 40. So he said, let, let not the Lord be angry and I'll speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. And he said, I'll not do it if I find 30. And he said, indeed, now I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Verse 32. And so he said, let not the Lord be angry and I'll speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. And I want you to know this. Abraham returned to his place because he did not think Sodom was going to be destroyed. 
Abraham was not troubled because he had asked specifically for 10. Why? That is not some random number. When you're reading through the scriptures and you see, oh, Abraham asked, hey, if there's 50, will you spare it? What about 45? What about 40? He gets them all the way down, whittles them all the way down to 10, goes, okay, you found 10. You're going to save it. It's going to be okay. Cool. All right. Peace be with you. Why 10? Because if we read Lot's household was guess how many people? Ten. And I'm sure Abraham thought, well, Lot's going to do just like me. Lot's teaching his children and his children after him, his grandchildren. He's teaching them to know the Lord. And so God's going to go down and find these ten righteous people in Sodom and he's going to spare the place. That was not God's plan. Unfortunately, Abraham made an assumption. And it's the same assumption that we often make as well in this culture. Abraham assumed. He assumed that Lot would be teaching his own children. Question, was Lot righteous or not? Was he regenerate or not? We have real trouble with this in Reformed community. Yes, Lot was righteous, and yet Lot was carnal. I hate the term carnal Christian. I despise it. Because of what it implies. But the scripture very clearly points that out here. Lot is, in fact, Lot is found in the Hebrews Hall of Fame of Faith. That righteous man vexed his soul daily with the things that he heard and saw. Lot had a household too. And the vast majority of Lot's household didn't make it through Sodom. Why? Because unlike Abraham, Lot didn't teach his children. Unlike Abraham, Lot kind of had the, I I suppose, maybe it was the drop-off culture. Lot let the culture raise his children rather than him. Let me tell you something. If you do that, your children will reflect the culture. They will not reflect Christ. And there will be a reckoning. Abraham thought he knew of at least ten righteous people in Sodom. This is what what Morris has to say. Abraham thought he knew of at least ten righteous people in Sodom because there dwelt Lot and his wife, their two sons, their two married daughters, their two husbands, and their two unmarried daughters. You can find that in Genesis 19. All of those. Oh, I know ten people living in Sodom. And you're gonna not, you're gonna, you're gonna deliver it if you find ten righteous? Well, go on your way. How many people came out? Chapter 19, how many people came out of Sodom? Four. One of those didn't even make it. Came a pillar of salt. How many of the ten came out? And we find out later, The two unmarried girls only came out because basically dad told them to. In other words, dad has not actually taught them about the ways of the Lord. And we see that later in their, in the way that they act and the things that they, I mean, they have incestual relationships with their dad later. Obviously, dad wasn't a great spiritual leader. I have news for you and it's going to be aimed right at me as well. A lot of the nonsense that we see, in fact, the vast majority of the nonsense that we see in what today is called Christian culture, which is anything but Christian, is for the most part because men have decided not to take the rule and role of their spiritual leadership in their home. And women have decided they're going to, and you can't do it because God didn't give you that anointing, if you will. I hate using that word. He didn't. Ladies, you can't lead your home. I know you don't like hearing that. God did not give you the tools necessary and requisite for the job. You can try. Well, my my husband's not saved, so I shouldn't say anything to my kids about the Lord. Of course you should. It's not the argument I'm making. 
Thank you for the mischaracterization. That's usually what happens when I debate. Oh, you're saying this. No, that's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. Dads, your job is to lead your home. Your job is to teach your children about the Lord. Your job is to teach your children the word. Your job is to model for them how to walk in a crooked and perverse age. That's your job. Are you doing your job? Or are you deciding to just give it off, hand it off to somebody else? Well, I took them to church. So what? The church is a supplement to the things you're teaching at home. The church is not the entirety, is not the encapsulation of everything that we're teaching. If the only place that your children get the word, if the only place that your children get doctrine, if the only place that your children get taught about God or the ways of God is at the church, they won't get much by the time they leave. If you came to church every single time we opened the door, you came every Sunday and every Wednesday. It's twice a week. If you came every single time and never missed, that's 104 days a year. There are 365 days in a year. You will not even have taught them a third. No, they won't get enough just in church. We have to be willing to do what Abraham did and what God said that Abraham was doing that was so good. And that is teaching our children. That is daily. Daily we teach our children how to follow the Lord. We impress upon them certain habits. What are the habits that we're trying to impress upon them? You read the scripture daily. You talk with the Lord daily. You pray to the Lord daily. This isn't something that you do just on Sundays and Wednesdays. I got a book and a couple of DVDs from the Barna company because they do all this research. And they're like, we're trying to figure out uh, why so many people, you know, end up leaving the church. And so they put out this book called You Lost Me. And it's basically about people that raised up in the church, but then they, they went astray. You know, by the time they're in high school or college or or after they, they start drifting away. Why did they drift away? Well, the top three basically were had to do with it was just a Sunday faith. Just something we did on Sundays and Wednesdays. And eventually I went, why? And there's other stuff I like to do on Sundays and Wednesdays too. I'd rather be out fishing. I'd rather be out hunting. I'd rather be playing ball. I got a hundred other things I could do. Why do I need to go to church? Well, you don't have to go to church to have a relationship with God. Is that the argument? Is that right? That's true. You don't have to be in church to be saved. I was not saved in a church building. I was saved on a, you know, my dad's rent house. Two in the morning. Well, see, so I don't need church. No, that's not the same thing. You don't have to breathe to be alive. No, go ahead. Try it. Hold your breath. You still alive? Yeah. Well, guess what? You keep doing it. Eventually, you will be dead. I could literally use the same logic and say, you don't have to eat to be alive. Hey, Moses fasted for 40 days. He's still alive. Right at the end of it, he was still alive. See, you don't need to eat. These are really poor arguments. You know why people make them? Because we don't explain them. And neither do parents. You know what a lot of us do? My kid has some really good questions, so would you answer them? Will I answer them? Sure. I'll try. But if your kid has good questions... What should you do? I mean, folks, we live in an age where you can find the answers in 20 minutes on the Internet. And for some of us, that's just too much work. My kid had a really good question. Well, you ought to go ask the pastor. Why? You've been walking with the Lord for 20 years and you're unequipped to answer this question, I'm not asking whether you know the answer. Nobody knows all the answers, but you don't even know where to find the answer. What's the good excuse for that? I like I saw a little sermon clip by Vody Bauckham this week. Very convicting and very true. He said, Christianity is the only place in the world where we will accept mediocrity after 20 years. 
It's like there's no other field. There's no field of vocation or work where you can have somebody. They've been doing it for 20 years and you put somebody with him. You say, hey, we got this new guy. We got this rookie. He wants to learn how to do this. We're going to put him with you. I don't don't give him to me. I don't know what I'm doing. Bro, you've been doing this for 20 years. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah, don't put him on the truck with me. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. You've driven this thing for 20 years and you can't tell somebody how to do it. Only in Christianity is that acceptable. It shouldn't be. Gentlemen, especially not for us men who have been given a very sacred duty by God. What is our duty? Our duty is to feed our households. Our duty is to open the word and explain to them. To tell them the mysteries of God. You are called to be a priest in a sense. Paul, I guess that's double for you. Everybody's a priest. Paul's like, me too. Yeah, okay, even if your last name's not priest. You've been called to be a priest in a sense or a prophet in a sense. What's that? You're going to speak God's word to your household. Ladies, you're not going to like it when I say this. Because God has asked those men to do that very thing, he will give them discernment that you do not have. That was that was hard, wasn't it? That hurt. He will show dad things that he may not show you. It's not incumbent upon him to show you. If dad says, I really don't like that boy, maybe you should listen. Well, he's a good boy. I like him. Okay. Good. Maybe God's given dad some discernment that you don't have. Maybe dad was once a 17-year-old boy too. And maybe you've never been one. I know. That's really harsh. Maybe it's true. Let's get into this. Let's go back up here to verse 1. The Lord appeared to him. The Lord appeared to Abram. Abraham now. By the terebinth trees of Mamre. By the way, apparently this had happened a short time after Genesis 17. How do we know that? Because in Genesis 17, 21, God told Sarah that she would give birth a year later. Now he's showing up again and she is not given birth and she's not even pregnant. So it wasn't much longer, right? A few months, maybe. Couldn't be more than about three months or so after the events of Genesis 17. So here again, the Lord comes to Abram, Abraham in human form. And this is another presentation of Jesus in human form before His incarnation. What do we call that? A Christophany or sometimes a theophany. Right? From the Greek, theo. Theo means God in Greek. It's God's name. I had a guy say one time, you know what God's name is? I said, I think so. What? And he goes, Theos. That's what it is in the Bible. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's good. Why not? Sure. Theo does mean God in Greek. That's true. And phanim means to show, theophany, theophany. So he's showing himself in human form before the incarnation of Christ. Why is that a big deal? Well, God is showing himself visibly to humanity in human form. Abraham is visiting with Jesus face to face before Jesus' incarnation. Every time God shows himself in human form in the scriptures, it is Jesus whom we are seeing. Okay? Every time. New Testament and Old Testament. Now that's a bold assertion, isn't it? And I noticed this the other day. I've never given you the background as to how we know that. So today, I'm going to attempt to do that. And I'm probably going to fail. If it doesn't make sense, just hang tight. The pieces will come together in a few minutes, okay? How do we know that this is Jesus talking to Abraham. How do we know it's not God the Father? John 1.18 tells us this. No one has ever seen God at any time. Does it mean no one's ever seen Jesus? No one's ever seen the Holy Spirit? No, it's making a direct reference to God the Father. No one's ever seen God the Father at any time. Except who? The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared Him to us. Why not? Well, 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us God the Father dwells in, quote, unapproachable light 
whom no man has seen or can see. Who wrote 1 Timothy? Paul the Apostle. Who's the only apostle that visited heaven before he died? Paul the Apostle. Who's the only person that could tell us that unqualified? Hey, I can promise you this. You can't see God the Father. He dwells in unapproachable light. His glory is so bright you can't even look at it. You will not know what he is or who he is or what his form is like. The only way that you can know who he is, what he is, or what his form is like is by him being declared by someone that does. Jesus. So it's definitely not God the Father. What about the Holy Spirit? Maybe this was the Holy Spirit encapsulating himself in flesh. Now, I want you to think about this. It can't be the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit is the person, not the part of God, by the way, the person of God. He's the person of God that's everywhere all the time. He permeates all of time, space, matter, spirituality. We don't know what spirits are made of. We don't know what what stuff makes up angels or demons. We don't know. But we do know that God permeates all of that, too. It's interesting to think about. I don't know if it's non-baryonic matter. If you're a science nerd, you can look that up later. But he permeates all of time and space. And in fact, by the way, that's the answer to one of the Baptist catechism questions. If you use the Baptist catechism, we do. One of the questions is, where is God? If you ask the vast majority of Americans, where is God? You know what they'll answer? He's in heaven. Well, God's in heaven. That's not wrong. God is in heaven. Is God only in heaven? No. God the Father is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven now. But the Holy Spirit permeates everything. He's everywhere. He's everywhere all the time. And he has been everywhere all the time for eternity. In other words, he's not just everywhere for a moment and then back. He's everywhere all the time. He permeates everything. In fact, this one attribute of God is so mysterious, we have three different words to try to describe it. We say he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere, right? We also say he is ubiquitous, and we say he is immense. God's ubiquitousness and God's immensity has nothing to do with how big God is. He's immense. A lot of times when we use the word immense, we mean something's big, right? But the word immense does not just mean big. It can also mean present, always present. What does it mean? His omnipresence means he's literally present everywhere all the time. How can God know everything? That's one of the catechism questions too, right? Does God know everything? Yes. Do you, can you see God? No. Can God see you? Yes. And nothing can be hidden from God. That's the answer to the catechism question, right? Nothing can be hidden from God. How is it nothing can be hidden from God? Because God is everywhere all at the same time. He's throughout everything. He permeates all of time, space, matter, everything. The, the word immensity literally means, and ubiquitousness literally means equal awareness. It's not a part of God that's somewhere. His hand isn't over here and his foot over there. All of God, meaning all of his attributes with him, are everywhere all the time. He is fully there. Wherever he's at, he's fully there. He's also immense. He's fully there and in equal measure. There's nowhere that you can go to get you further away from God. We use terms like this. Well, I was running from God. You weren't running from God. There's nowhere you can go that you can get away from God. There's nowhere you can go to get closer to God, which is exactly why Jesus was telling the woman at the well, Sister, trust me, it's time coming when you're not going to go to Jerusalem to worship. God is spirit and he demands to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. What was he saying? There's no place on earth you can go to be closer to God. If you take a trip to Jerusalem, you're not going to be closer to God. I don't care what you feel while you're right there at the Wailing Wall. You're not closer to God there than you are trapped in a basement in a dungeon by an ISIS member. There's nowhere that you can go to get away from God. There's nowhere you can go to get closer to God. God is spirit. He's everywhere. Well, then why does the Bible say, cleanse your hands, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you? Because it's using analogical language to tell you God is everywhere. He's everywhere all the time, but you don't sense him a lot of times because of the interruption of your own sin. It is your sin that separates you from God. It is not your physical location. 
<coughs> Don't let the dispensationalists hear that I'm saying this. He's everywhere fully and equally. The fullness of his presence is in every place throughout all of creation. He is extended infinitely into and throughout all of matter, all of time and all of space. And he is that way all of the time. And because of that, because Jesus and the Holy Spirit share an essence. Remember, we say God is one essence, but three persons because Jesus and the Holy Spirit share an essence All of the knowledge of all creation that is immediately available to the Holy Spirit is also immediately available to Jesus all the time. How could Jesus have known these people's thoughts? Because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are of one essence and everything the Holy Spirit knows, he knows. Well, then why was it that Jesus would ask questions of people that sounded like he was asking for actual information? Hey, how long has the boy been like this? Because Jesus, to have a more, if you will, a more full human experience, chose to, at times, volitionally, voluntarily limit himself. I will limit myself to have a more, if you will, human experience. Jesus is not asking those questions today. Okay? Why? He is all-knowing. Why am I even bringing this up? Why am I even bringing this out? Because I want you to realize something. Jesus, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we're about to get into a piece of scripture where an entire bunch of towns are destroyed for their wickedness and sin. In fact, one of the major reasons they're destroyed is their wickedness and sin that is enumerated as homosexuality. And we have a bunch of people today that are basically Marcionists. They're they're heretics who'll say, well, the Old Testament was a different God than this. The Old Testament, that was, you know, that was under that wrathful, mean God. But in the New Testament, we have this very loving, very kind, you know, kind of Santa Clausy Jesus who just kind of winks at sin and still loves us. And I'm here to tell you something. The same Jesus that died for your sin on the cross destroyed Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities of the plains because of their sin. God the Father was not the only one involved. A lot of people think that. Oh, it was God the Father that judged these these wicked sinners. But today in the New Testament, we have Jesus. Jesus Christ condemned that. Jesus Christ condemned the sin. And Jesus Christ condemned the sinners too. And I've got news. Jesus Christ will condemn every sinner. There's no one who will get away with sin. None. In fact, his wrath will be perfect. I'm really excited about this um, thing that we're going to do in our small groups. It's a a study by uh, Ligonier Ministries and Steve Lawson on the attributes of God. You know why I'm so excited? You know what one of the attributes that they cover is that most people skip because it's uncomfortable? The wrath of God. One of the lessons is on the wrath of God. Jesus Christ has wrath. In fact, Jesus Christ has the same wrath as the Father and the Holy Spirit. They do not operate apart from each other. They share one essence. We don't have the the mean, wrathful God the Father and the nice, sweet, kind, gentle, forgiving Jesus. No, they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ was not standing down here in the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah going, No, God, don't do it! No! Jesus Christ went down Himself in person. Thumb stamp of approval. This place deserves judgment. Bring it. We think of Jesus in a way that is not his nature. We think somehow he has no anger. He has no wrath. He does. You know what? I mean, that's basically the book of Revelation. What's the book of Revelation about? Showing you that this Lamb of God also wears a sword. And he will slay his enemies. Remember, I told you the Holy Spirit's everywhere all at one time, right? The Holy Spirit is perfectly aware of every sin you've ever committed. Not just the sin you've committed, the way that you've tried to cover up those sins you've committed. I think it's very telling 
to me. I'll have these conversations as a pastor with other people and they'll do things that are wicked and they know they're wicked and they know they're wrong and then they try to spin it so it doesn't look so bad. I'm sure you've never done that. Have you ever done that? Yes, you have. Uh, Let me just help you out. Yes, you have. Have I ever done that? Yes, I have. Yes. That's part of uh, being human and having a sin nature. You know what? Jesus knows all of that. That's why God's justice is perfect, because he's all-knowing. When Jesus condemns a sinner, he doesn't just see the sins that you and I saw. He saw the motives in the dark of the middle of the night that nobody else saw. He saw what happened when this person or you decided, oh, I'm going I'm to get myself secluded away so nobody can see. Nobody will be able to know that I did this. You can't, how can you get away from the Holy Spirit? You cannot get away from the Holy Spirit. You cannot get away from Jesus. Even if no other human eye ever knows, there's one that does. His wrath is perfect, which is why his forgiveness can be perfect. Jesus, when he forgives, does not forgive you of just those things that your parents know about or just those sins that you got caught doing. He has forgiven you for all of the sins that you ever did. He's forgiven you about all, for all the sins you ever will do. Because, because God is omnipresent, that means he's also throughout all of time. There is never a time that the Holy Spirit looked down the corridors of time to find something out. For him to do that, he would have to be unknowing. In other words, if, if it is true that you were saved because God looked down the corridors of time and saw who would choose him, then that means God learned something. He was not all-knowing. No, God was already in that moment. Now, that's weird to us because we experience time linearly. God does not. God is here fully. He's right here right now fully. God is also fully in this place next Tuesday. God fully knows what will happen, everything that will happen in this building on Tuesday. He knows every little fly that will fly through or every little mouse that's looking for a crumb. He also knows every sin that you will commit. Not just the sin that you just committed. Not just the sins that you committed before you came to him. He knew about every sin you would commit. He knew the sins you would commit when you're 40. And he chose to love you anyway. When Jesus Christ chooses to love you and forgive you, it is without exception. When he changes your heart, you now have godly sorrow. He's the only one that can fully forgive because he's the only one that really knows how deep your depravity goes. That's, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But it is true. I can remember thinking by the time I got to this age, like, hey, when I get to 40, I'll have it all together, right? Somehow, I will have transcended my sin nature, right? It's not true. In some areas, I walk with more um, self-control, and I walk in a much more dignified manner, or I walk in a much less sinful manner than I did at 20. And that's because Jesus Christ is working in me to will and do to his good pleasure, right? He's growing me. He's working in me, even to the day of Christ Jesus, right? As the scriptures say. It is not because my base nature has changed. My base nature hasn't changed. I'm still a sinner. But I am justified through the blood of Christ. Okay. Now that I've been thoroughly confusing there. God sees all and knows all because of his Holy Spirit. I think we've covered that. But the Holy Spirit is, as his name implies, a non-corporeal being. I mean, he can't be everywhere all the time. If he contained himself in flesh, right? So instead, who of the Trinity did that? Jesus. Jesus chose to voluntarily limit his person, though not his being. I know that's really weird to say, but it's true. What does that mean? Well, it means he is, he took on flesh, right? In his corporeal form, he was not everywhere at one time. Rather, the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit can't be confined or contained in flesh. Why? Because that's how he's omnipresent and omniscient. How is he all-knowing? God is not all-knowing because he's just magical or something. God's all-knowing because he's everywhere all at once. 
God knows everything about you. God knows the things about you you don't know about you. God knows everything about your physical being. He also knows everything about your spiritual being. He also knows everything about your intellectual being. He knows every thought you'll have and every thought you will have. He knows every thought that you'll have that will turn into a word. He knows every word before it even escapes your mouth. What the prophet said, before it even is formed on my tongue, you know it all together. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. God knows it all together. That raises an important theological point, And here's here's the one that I'm going to get to. The important theological point is this. Jesus' life did not begin at the Immaculate Conception. We are seeing Jesus talk with Abraham. Jesus was not the first and greatest created being. The reason I'm saying this is because, you know, the state of theology comes out every year, right? And something like 70-something percent of all Christians who answered the question, it was a true-false question, is Jesus the greatest, the first and greatest of all created beings? And more than 70% of those who call themselves evangelicals said, yes. Well, they they saw greatest, and so they were like, yes, he's the greatest. Jesus is not the greatest created being. He's not a created being. He can't be the greatest of something he's not even a part of. Okay? Paul Wilson is not the greatest and tallest midget there ever was. I'm not a midget. Okay? (laughs) And there's probably actually no classification, no category that you could ever say I was the greatest of anything, right? Okay. <laughs> He's the most greatest mediocreist. I saw a shirt one time that said, uh, world's okayest pastor. I told my wife, I was like, that's a shirt I could get behind. <laughs> right? Jesus was not created. That assumption is actually part of an old heresy known as Arianism. Which basically says this, well, before the universe was ever made, God the Father made Jesus, and then Jesus helped God the Father make everything else. No. John chapter 1 tells us, obviously not. Nothing was made that was made without him, including him. Okay? He is not a creation. He's not a being. Or he's not a being. He's not a created being. He's a being. He's not a being like you and I. He doesn't have a beginning. Which is why those Jews got so mad at Jesus. He's talking about Abraham, right? John chapter 8. He says, hey, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Excuse me? You're not even 50 years old and you say you've seen Abraham? And what did he say? He did not say, Jesus did not say, his answer to the question was not, well, before Abraham was, I was. Instead, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Why? Well, he was being really, really clear. Sometimes skeptics and Arians will say, uh, well, Jesus never claimed to be deity. That's something you Christians did. No, Jesus claimed to be deity. Very clearly. That was one of the times. If you'd like to look that up later, by the way, that's John 8, 56 through 59, where he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old yet. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Did I see Abraham? You darn right I saw Abraham. I talked to him, son. Yes, you're not even 50. You're wrong. This fleshly body that I am now incarnate in may not be 50, but I'm much more than 50. I'm without age. I spoke to him at the doors by the tent, by the trees of Mamre. I, I went down and saw Sodom. I walked through the Tower of Babel. I was there. He can't say I was because then that implies that he had a beginning. In other words, like he was born before Abraham. He literally has to change the verb that he uses to show he is without beginning. Before Abraham was, I am. He is the great I am. He has no beginning and no end. It's very clear that he was divine. It's very clear that he knew he was divine. It's very clear that he was making the statement he was divine. Yes, Jesus claimed to be God. Why did Jesus claim to be God? Because he is God. And if he would have claimed otherwise, he'd have been a liar like you and me. Like humanity. By the way, the Gospel of John records that over and over and over. A lot of the divinity, the the sayings of the claims of divinity uh, are recorded in, in the book of John. And not only the claims of divinity, there are acts that Jesus did simply to show that he was divine. Why in the world would he wait till all the, you know, all of his disciples are like, dude, we're going down. 
this, this, uh, this storm is terrible. It's going to sink us. Don't you care? Jesus is like, peace be still. What would you have done? I think I said, I need to change my huggies. <laughs> right. What does Peter do when he sees some of these miracles? God, get away from me. I saw the, that, that little video on, uh, what is it called? The Chosen One or The Chosen, something like that. Right. And Peter sees him do this big miracle with the fish. Right. We fished all night. We caught nothing. And now you're telling me you want me to go out here during the day when you can't get fish. Everybody knows that. And you want me to throw my nets out here on the side of the boat. By the way, the boats are right here by the shore. OK, we're, we're not in a good fishing spot. Go down your nets. I don't think you understand, God. I'm not in a good place. No, I don't think you understand. He's God. And if he says to do it, do it. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. He's God. He's not asking for it to make sense in your mind. There are a lot of things that Christ asks us to do that do not make sense to our carnal minds. Why does he ask us to do it? Because we do not live by faith or we do not live by sight. What do we live by? We live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. It doesn't make sense. Why should I throw the net out there? Just do it. What does Peter say? Basically, he makes the same argument, right? Like, we've been fishing all night. There's no fish in this water. Nevertheless, at your word, they throw out the nets. There's so many fish, they can't hardly hold it. It's just going to sink the boats. And what's Peter's response? God, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Let me tell you something. When you see Jesus as he truly is, you're not going to say Jesus is my homeboy. When you see Jesus as he truly is, and you see you as you truly are, you will say, get away from me, I am a sinful man. And it's that moment that you can actually, finally, realize what forgiveness really is. You're not a good person, and Jesus is just coming to make you better. You're a sinful being. Isaiah, who we think of as being a very righteous man, said, I'm a man of unclean lips, living in the middle of a people of unclean lips. Why did he say that? Because he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Why do we have the nonsense that we have today? Because we don't see the Lord as high and lifted up. We see the Lord as our peer. He's my buddy. I'm kind of his advisor. I'm a pretty good guy. He knows me, me and God. We got this all worked out. No, he's not your buddy. He's not your peer. He's the Lord. He's the God of all heaven and earth, all of creation. And you are nothing but dust that he has animated. (laughs) Reminds me, I was was at a church one time when I was a kid. (laughs) The pastor prayed that, hey, we are but dust. It gets real quiet, and literally while the whole church is quiet, a little kid looks over and says, What's butt dust? And that's it. That's, we're done. Well, son, that's what we are. That's weird. We are but dust. Now I can't say that because we are only dust that God's chosen to animate. The Gospel of John, in fact, shows Jesus' divinity so much so. I had a, pastor, I had a uh, conversation with a, a pastor, a Pentecostal pastor a few years ago, who was so Arian that he, his argument was, well, yeah, John says that Jesus is divine, but John shouldn't be part of the Bible. Okay. All right, brother. I think, I think you've misread your scripture when you're at that point. When you're at the point that you're going to say, I don't want this book of the Bible in here, you need to reexamine your own theology. Why have I said all of that? I want you to realize this. It's Jesus who is there at the tent doors. It is Jesus that spoke to Abraham. How would, how would Abraham run out to them and go, Lord, here you are? He, he recognized him. Said the first time he's seen him. Alright? Whoa! That's God. He's got a couple of guys with him. Not real sure who those guys are. They, they don't look like they're here to play. But that's God. Jesus was there. At the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus was there. And at the end of time, when every soul will be before him and be judged, guess who's doing the judging? Jesus is there. The same Jesus 
that is willing to forgive you and me judged and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You can tell it's about time for us to be done. I want to point one more thing out and then I'll close. Verses 6 through 8, we notice this. Sarah and Abraham start preparing a meal for God. Literally. Why didn't they just have their servants do it? Dude, Abraham's an old man. You're going to run out to the flock and choose out one yourself? No. You're going to tell your servant to go do it. He had a lot of people there working for him. Why didn't he just tell his guy, hey, I want you to go get me the best one and get it done, right? He went all the way out there and chose one himself and gave it to the boy and says, hey, go prepare this and make a meal out of it. Why didn't he just tell the boy, go get the best one and bring it in here? I have news for you. Maybe... Maybe it was that Abraham was not willing to take the chance. I know which one is the best one. I know which one of these is fit for the king of kings. And I don't want my servant going out here and doing me a favor by saving the best one and getting us the third best. Or just getting one that, oh, that looks like it'll do the job. You ever had that, by the way? You ever done that? You ever given a job to an employee and you want it done right and they just, they just do as good? Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, almost every time, right? What's the old saying? If you want something done right, do it yourself. Everybody knows. Every adult here knows. Right. <laughs> Junior high, high school kid, like, what? Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, don't tell me that you do your very best. I've graded some of y'all's people's work. Don't tell me that's the best you got to offer. Like, are you serious? I had to write the question. <sighs> I know. It's like seven words long. It's probably, your hand's probably going to fall off. I know. It's crazy. Why would they do that? They, because they wanted to give their very best. They knew this was God. I'm going to give my very best. I'm not entrusting this to someone else. And I'm going to make this point. And here's what the point I'm making. It's the same thing with our children. I want my children to know the word. I want to give it my very best. I'm not going to entrust that to other people. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to be diligent to do this. That's our job. That's our job as parents. We're going to teach our children to know God and to know God through his word. Right? Listen, it's not just the church's responsibility. That is not to say, I mean, when you come up here, look, I and every other person that takes this pulpit are going to preach God's word the best we know how. We're going to study it diligently. We're going to do our very best to labor in the scriptures. But the truth of the matter is this. If you're not teaching them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the days that you're between here, there's very little I can do to make them strong in faith. Are you with me here? They need the word. And they need more than they can just get here. I told you, it's going to take me four years to get through the book of Genesis. If the only time that your children get taught about the book of Genesis is when they're here hearing these sermons, we have, you and I, have all, we've failed. They need more than what I can just give them. They need what you can give them. You need to teach them God's word. And you need to teach them how to learn God's word on their own. You need to teach them how to read the word of God. How to labor in the scriptures. How to use a concordance. How to look up commentary. What are good commentaries to use and what are poor. All of that stuff, you, you must teach them. Leave you with this. Chapter 18, verse 19, for I have known him, Abraham. This is Jesus speaking about Abraham. For I have known him in order that he might command his children and his household after him so that they might keep the way of the Lord. Why was he willing to open himself up to reveal himself so plainly to Abraham? Why didn't Lot get the same treatment? For I have known him in order that he might command his children and his household after him. Listen, if you're a Christian today, God has known you. And he has not just known you so that you can know him. He's known you and he's shown himself to you. He's illuminated the texts as you've read. He has, in a sense, revealed himself to you. Why? So that you may take those things that he's revealed to you and teach them to your own children. And hopefully one day, 
to even your grandchildren, your children's children. I'm not sure that there's a more important task we've been given, especially as Christian fathers. To raise up our children that they might know the Lord and know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It does two things, Lord. It hurts us because it, it stabs us, it cuts us deep. And yet it, in the same time, is the balm that, that heals those wounds. Father, I ask that today would be a challenge to all of us, Lord, to teach our children the word of God. That we would do it daily. Not that we would find time to do it, but that we would make time to do it. That even if that means our family does not look like the rest of the families around us, even if our family does not look like every other, quote, Christian family that we know, we take time out of our day to learn God's word. We take time out of our day to, to know you, to sing about you, to learn about you, to focus on you. Father, we ask that you would... Give us the ability to do that, Lord. Make us hungry to know your word, but make us hungry to see it passed on to our own children as well. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.